This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 251 of the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner. We're in Greeley, Colorado, right before the start of the World Works Invitational, uh, although people won't hear it. Uh, it'll be a few weeks after this when they finally hear it. Joining me is Nick Ponchame of Homes and Smooge. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited about doing the Smooge cast today. Uh, I can't tell you how excited I am yeah, about this. <laughs> <laughs> of course, those who read Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine know that Smooge was one of our beers of the year last year. Whether it's a beer or not and should be included in that, I'll leave to other people to argue about on the internet. I don't really care. We thought it was fantastic. Our our, our team loves it and have enjoyed drinking this. It's uh, it's certainly its own thing. and has carved out its own space in this world of uh of beverages uh you approach it from a you know pretty crafty perspective you're not making a ton of it you approach it you're you're brewing it or making it producing smooge in this way that uh, builds a incredibly flavorful product um at the same time you guys brew all across the spectrum you brew everything from uh, mixed culture cool ship beers uh you know sour beers i mean it, you know it's kind of a weird thing to go if you look at that entire breadth of uh of beers that Holmes and smooge now make together we're going to talk about some of those things we're definitely going to talk about uh, fruited hard seltzer but we'll also talk about some other beers along the way just to maintain your brewing credibility Nick, before we do that, for nearly 30 years, GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. GD stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. GD also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System Design experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, are you ready to brew like a pro? Pro Brew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery to the next level. Check out www.probrew.com for info on patented ProCarb inline carbonation technology, ProFill rotary filling and seaming can fillers, the Alchemator inline alcohol separation system, seven to 50 barrel brew houses, and more. ProBrew, a subsidiary of Technoblend, is now a ProMock brand, offers the craft beer industry innovative solutions to help you brew like a pro. Go to www.probrew.com for more info. Nick, we normally kick off the podcast with a little bit of background. Tell me about yours. Yeah, I'm uh, from New Jersey originally, uh, born and raised in New Jersey, like 12 miles outside of New York City. Uh, grew up out there. I uh, went to culinary school. I was really, really into the mindset that I was going to be a chef mm. coming out of high school. Yeah. Um, and that was right around the time where things were you really- knew that coming out of high school, that that was going to be the thing. Yeah. Huh. I, had an, I had an uncle that owned a, a deli and a catering business. So I started working with them yeah. and I thought this could be a thing. I was a terrible student. So I was like, this might be something <laughs> sure, I could actually sure, fall sure. into. Um, and that was right around the time like Anthony Bourdain was, you know, already popular, really right. good Bobby, but like the food scene in America was kind of changing and getting cooler and chefs kind of had a celebrity. And uh, I was just really into that. So I went to uh, Johnson and Wales University in Pro Providence, Rhode Island, um, and uh, went there for culinary arts and food service management. And I met a buddy 
who was into homebrewing with his dad. Um, so I kind of got into craft beer and thought I might try to intern in college. And, and I graduated in 2008. So pretty much the height of the sure. recession. It's not a good time <laughs> to graduate college. Right. Um, and you know, the only job that I could see myself taking and be able to pay these massive college loans was a, like a corporate dining company, basically, uh, for specifically for college dining. So mm-hmm. like companies would bid and, and win a bid to provide food service for a college, like an Aramark kind of exactly. Yeah. yeah it yeah. was uh Cisco, I think Cisco. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So I worked at St. John's university in Queens. Um, Queens. It's a fantastic borough. <laughs> yeah. So I used to I drive. spent 10 years living in Queens. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 I used to drive from uh, New Jersey to Queens and back every day. Oh, my God. So uh, just an enormous amount of money spent just to That's get to absurd. work. That's yeah, absurd. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And traffic and all that. Um, and, you know, it, you know, as you can imagine, was a pretty miserable uh, sure. job if you were like in the mindset that you wanted to do something really creative right. and culinary minded. Um, it was it was the worst and I, <clears throat> I didn't enjoy my time doing that. And then finally I just got laid off at some point and I was like, in my mind, I had already made up my mind, like I'm just going to get into brewing because I'd been home brewing that throughout that mm-hmm. job. You know, they put me on the night shifts. So like there was like a, a store for college kids to go to four in the morning oh, to buy geez. candy when they were high. So <laughs> I, I would just sit in the office and read home brewing books. Oh, hey, and perfect. Spent all my time doing that. Yeah. So once I got laid off, I just like made up my mind, like this is what I'm going to do. doesn't matter. You know, I, I'd gotten good job offers once I got laid off and I just didn't take them. Hmm. And I decided I'm going to go on unemployment and I did a full-time internship at a brewery in New Jersey called Cricket Hill. Um, who, they just basically do, they do lager, they do ales too, but mm-hmm. lager was their big thing. And they'd been around for a long time, very traditional. Um, and, you know, they, they just were taking a bunch of full-time unpaid interns as like to help, to help get stuff done there, which now oh, those heady days yeah. of brewing back then. Sure. Sure. Right. Exactly. So like at the time, uh, I, unpaid people in the brew house. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Oh well, my God. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. But honestly, I, right now, I, you know, probably wouldn't, that wouldn't be accepted so much. But back then I was like, this right. is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, like yeah, I just, yeah. so I worked for them four months, not, not getting paid, nothing. Um, and then I was able to snag a job at a, a little brew pub in New York City called 508 Gastro Brewery. Hmm. Um, they were open back in the day. They're not around anymore. Um, but I worked there for a year. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a restaurant that then got a brewer license. I, you know, the, they set up the brewery in the basement, nano brewery style. We'd brew down there, very small scale. We'd fill bottles. I'd you know, push carts of bottles down like Manhattan city blocks to a shipping <laughs> storage place, yeah. ride the elevator up and put it into a shipping container and do that like three times. to like get a batch of beer over there. It was an awesome experience that was right when craft beer was really starting to take off in New York city. I got to pour at like the first New York city brewers guild. What year was fest. that? I mean, that must've been 2000 10 2011 sure sure um, i left in 2010 to move out to colorado and it's like i think within a year the entire city looked different for beer it was crazy it yeah. was it just happened like overnight yeah I mean, all of a sudden I'd, there were new breweries like literally a half a block from our old apartment in long island city You're like where were you for the last 10 years when i lived here yeah but it's been in that northeast area it's like crazy the transition like 
when I left New Jersey, there was eight breweries. And now, I mean, there's right, right. tons of breweries. This is like right before other half opened and, and sure. a bunch of those breweries. Um, so after a year at that at 508 Gastro Brewery, I had gotten a job offer to work at Right Brain Brewery in Traverse City, Michigan. Um, and I never really lived in Michigan or really spent too much time there, but they were the only one that were, that were answering my emails. So, <laughs> sure. uh, uh, so I moved to Traverse City. Huh. Okay. Uh, and that was it. And then I... I was a brewer there for a few months and then just got moved to the head brewer position um, there for shy of four years living in Traverse City, which Traverse City is like a vacation yeah, town. Yeah. I mean, if you're familiar, yeah, in northwest, northwest yeah. Michigan. It's actually like a beach town, which mm-hmm. you don't really think of when you think of the Midwest, but they were like right on Lake Michigan. Uh, and I lived there for four years and brewed there. Um, and then I uh, connected with Tommy, the owner of Homes, through pro brewer. Um, wow. He had posted for a job and I kind of, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to get hit three years or exactly at right brain. And then I'm going to start looking for another thing. I just wanted to grow and, and try other things. And uh, within 20 minutes of me applying, he called me and we talked for like a few hours on the phone and then just like consistently was talking until the brewery. Finally, we, we, we waited till we purchased the property before I actually moved down and started yeah. working. Um, so that was that was kind of the leading up to homes, yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. Well, let's talk about homes, and I'm I'm curious about this because you know you you got to launch the brewery together, which means you know the production, the beers that you make, the vision for this is a is a shared vision. Yeah, um, yeah, and that, that's always fascinating to me to kind of dive into that creative process and how you decide to be a brewery. Before we do that, supply chain challenges are here to stay for a while. So why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more of concentrate from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes from various carriers and can stay up to date on the status of your shipment. To get started on a freight quote for craft concentrates today, head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer also looking for good lager yeast fermentus the obvious choice for beverage fermentation provides brewers large and small with the most complete portfolio of dry lager yeast available anywhere to learn more about how fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases visit fermentus.com so Nick, talk to me about these, the early formative stage of homes. Um, you know, this is again, mid 20 teens. Now you all are looking to, to launch, uh, you know, a new brewery in what would, would then be a more crowded market. It wasn't as empty as it would have been four years ago when you started, uh, you know, at your other brewery in Traverse city, you know, so, so what did that creative process look like? How did you all determine you know, a, a road to take and uh, how to build out a product strategy around that. Yeah, we tried to be really intentional uh, early on um, before the brewery opened to like be testing out recipe development with. Is Tommy a brewer? I mean, is, is no. So Tommy okay. came from home health care, actually. He was oh, okay. working with his brother before that. He's from Michigan originally. Sure, sure. Moved away from Michigan for a while and then came back to go to U of M, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, and then him and his, his brother started a, a home healthcare company and he joined the team. And then I think kind of had a, like a yearning to do something and go out on his own and sure. something that he can bring people together. Definitely a big craft beer fan, but like wanted to go a direction that was not just a, 
just to open a business to make money much more of a sure. community feel. But this is a leap of faith then for you because you are leaving an existing established brewery with a track record. Yeah. You're going to create a brand new business with somebody who is not currently operating a craft beer business. I mean, that's you're, you're diving right in. Yeah. hundred percent. I think for me, I, my, my skill set is recipe development. I'm not necessarily the most engineering or science, science-based brewer. You know, we've, we've hired staff that are fantastic at that to help with that. But my, you know, I really like the, the recipe development part of it. So I really wanted to get in on the ground level with the brewery and not come in and be brewing other people's beers. Um, so that was, that was a big goal of mine. And that's kind of one of the things I really liked. I mean, I obviously I really hit it off with Tommy, but he wanted somebody that was passionate that wanted to start something, had ideas. He didn't, he wasn't going to come in and push. We've got to brew an ESP. We've got to brew this or that. Like, and I kind of, I really actually liked that dynamic. I don't know that it would have been the same situation if he was like a veteran craft beer guy coming into it. Um, obviously tons, he still has tons of input. Um, he's super savvy when it comes to that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was, it was a little bit of a leap of faith, but also like, this is perfect. And, I, and not being from Michigan originally, another one of my things, no offense to people from Michigan, there's only like a few cities that I would really would consider living in Michigan at that time. Mm-hmm. And Ann Arbor was definitely one of them. So I was like, this is kind of a perfect scenario for me. Yeah. Yeah. So. Get to move away from vacation town into a more year round city. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Traverse city was really cool too. I will say that's for a great sure. city. Yeah. They just get, an enormous amount of snow and I can't deal with it. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, no, you know, and then there's that, I, I don't know if, you know, what your relationship status was at that point, but it's something I always think about. There was a point where, uh, you know, I had applied for a job years ago when I lived in New York out in uh, Carbondale, mm-hmm. uh, Colorado. And, you know, it was like a town of 10,000 people. Yeah. Like if you were young and single, like they kept losing employees because male or female, if you were single, the dating pool is really, really small. <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. so in a you know, place like that, that's more, you know, seasonal or vacation oriented, that like, like it just tends to like, it, yeah. I mean, there are other limiting factors that are around uh, yeah. you know, social scenarios and whatnot. So for sure. And then it's, it's in t- super intense in the summer right. with work and then very slow in the winter. There's yeah. a lot of ebbs yeah. and flows. But so we basically what we did was we were really intentional um, about recipe development. I brewed out of Tommy's garage for like a full year before we got open. Really? Yeah. And he, he's got a very good network of friends. People, he brought you on to, and paid you. Yeah. I mean, the business paid you for a year before you all opened. Yeah. He was basically like, I want to be able to buy the building first before I tell you to move down here and, you know, quit your job and all right, that, right. which is, you know, fair enough. Sure. Sure. So he, as soon as he closed on the building, he's like, all right, it's time to go. I, there was literally the, if, I mean, if you've been to the brew pub before, there's a brew pub, a parking lot, and then a little house in the parking lot, basically, which is, it's like a weird setup, but the house <laughs> sure, is sure. part of the property. So is it the name, right? Yeah. It's a two family home. And, uh, I lived upstairs huh. in a tiny little apartment while we were trying to get this thing open. Yeah. Um, but we he he has a really good network of friends and they, he had a poker night every single Tuesday and we would get a decent amount of people showing up sure. to his house you know sometimes up to 20 25 people every week so we had a, a You're keg- beta testing beer all that's the time it. it was a kegerator we had a google doc you could have a beer under the condition that you would you have to rate it no matter what you have to give feedback like there's no there's no way around that so <laughs> every week i had a living sure. document with rating and feedback on every beer that we were brewing up until we opened. So that, that was really helpful in getting that started. 
So then what did the, you know, initial, uh, you know, product strategy look like? You know, of course, lots of breweries opening in that time frame have since pivoted to different product strategies or yeah. realized that maybe this is a little more limited than, uh, you know, than I yeah. thought it would be. You know, what did it look like then? What does it look like now? Yeah, I mean, it was a really fun time to get into the industry, especially in Michigan. You it, know, it seems weird to be like nostalgically looking back on six or seven years ago. Yeah. Um, it seems kind of early to be looking it's back just, in that way. But having said that, like, I mean, a lot has changed in that time. Craft beer in general is in the past decade has changed so much so fast. So like five years, I mean, we, we just hit our five year mark and it's crazy how different it is from then to now. Yeah. But coming into it, you know, New England IPA was starting, it was already obviously a pretty big thing on the East coast, but it was starting to spread. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't really much New England IPA in Michigan. We were big fans of it. I, you know, I came from the East coast and we had done some traveling to like talk to brewers and explore. And we did a bunch of East coast stuff. Um, so, we, you know, the goal, the mindset was we were going to do sour beer and hoppy beer early on. Those were the two things. I kind of pushed to have a few options. And I think this is still like the brew pub 90s mentality mm -hmm. I had where like you got to have something for everybody. There should be a stout. There should be an ESB. And like those styles are obviously great. But we, you know, we pushed with for sours and, and IPAs. Um, we didn't, you know, we wanted to do mixed culture sour. That was something we were really passionate about, but that obviously takes a ton of time. Right. So we opened up with kettle sours as an option. Um, and then we realized with like in the first two weeks, we had four beers left because we just really didn't have a lot of brewing space. It was three 10 barrel tanks and a 20 barrel tank. And we had a 10 barrel brew house. So we were, you know, I was trying to like keep the ESB on and the stout on. And then we were brewing these IPAs, the IPAs and the fruited sours would get drank. And then all you, you know, people would hear about our, those, those styles of beer driving from Ohio or Indiana. And there's like an ESB and like a, <laughs> that's sub, all that's like, left. like a not great stout. And like, yeah, it's just like, oh. which I could see the frustration there. Yeah. So Tommy and I kind of had to have a, a come to Jesus. Cause I was pushing to, for like, well, we have to have all these styles. And he's like, just let's just brew the beers that people are coming here for. Right. So for a long time, it was, I mean, we basically just had hoppy beer, fruited sour beer. We do a beer called King Cold Brew, which is like an imperial cream ale that we add coffee grinds direct. So it's like a lighter colored coffee beer. And that was kind of it. It was just that. Um, and then we were able to start to come out with um, some mixed culture sour stuff. Um, we had spent some time out in Oregon at Cascade and really loved what they were doing. So we kind of did that. Um, Brew a clean beer and then long age and oak with bacteria, right. like long developed souring. Um, the building we're in is a Culligan water building from the forties. And in, they would built these like cast cement block rooms underground that they would fill with water and salt because they would use salt water solution to clean your home water filter. So they pump hmm. them on a truck. So we converted those into a space that you could walk down because there was no like human, you, people were not supposed to be in it because it was just for that. Right. So we put stairs in, floor drains in, and then just had barrels of that type of sour down there. And then also still started doing just straight up mixed culture Solera. We had a 60 barrel that we do Solera mixed culture sour in. Cool Ship beers came in and then just blended bower, blended barrel mixed culture sour as well. Um, and then all the way up until now, you know, we, we have a line of, uh, we bought a food, a 40 barrel fooder from fooder crafters and just do fooder loggers in that. So we've got a line of loggers, uh, we've branched out, you know, we, we didn't want to touch stout for a while early on. We had a few stouts that went on tap that, like I said, 
I'm, I'm okay saying it now we're kind of subpar. So we just like got away from it. And then we talked more and more about barrel aged stouts and, you know, me having like a culinary background. I, I, I was confident it was something we could do well because the adjunct part of it was something I'm familiar with. Like these are real sure. tangible ingredients, vanilla or nut or nuts or whatever. Like I can really get a handle on that type of thing. So we started releasing, um, barrel aged stouts right at the end of 2019. Um, and those are like more limited, not around all the time, but we've done pretty well with those. So, well, how did smooge come to be? Tell Uh me the smooge origin story Uh, because I'm fascinated by this. Like, I mean, how do you even start conceiving of the existence of a, you know, 300 ish calorie hard seltzer that looks like a fruit smoothie, you know, yeah, like it didn't exist in the world. And then, you know, the entire market there was moving towards very light, low mm. cal, you know, dry, essenced, uh, you know, kind of approach to hard seltzer. And you guys just went 180 degrees in the other direction and said, we're going to blow the flavor out on this and make something. Talk to me about the the early days of Smooge and how that whole thing came to be. Yeah, I think when I really think about it, it's the very big upside of being small and nimble um, as a brewery early on. You know, we seltzer obviously had become this thing that was more and more and more popular um craft breweries started doing seltzer but a lot of it was um they also started hating on a lot of seltzer uh, at the same time Uh, maybe more hate than makers uh, you know in those earlier days for sure and i mean you know at this point i understand why people like seltzer like if you're not looking for a lot of calories and you know a lot of people have gluten intolerance now or, or celiac so you know i understand the move towards it but we, we, a lot of people were getting into it. We knew like, if we're going to do this, we would really like to do it differently. I don't, you know, that that's kind of the thing with homes. Like we're not necessarily the brewing, the classic styles to style. I mean, not, I, I would go as far as say, we just don't do that. And I love classic styles, but you know, we, if we're going to do it, I want it to be more interesting and a different take on it. Um, and we've always been pretty open-minded to gluten-free stuff at our brew pub. We got licensed to sell alcohol or liquor and, white wine and you know tommy's wife um has celiac so we're hmm. we're pretty open-minded to people who don't drink beer and we wanted to include my, my younger son has celiac and i'm in the same boat with that i uh, i am a big fan of non-gluten based products that can still live in this craft world that we're in yeah and that that's a, a big thing with our brew pub too like we we wanted to be able to attract if we were really we're going to be community-minded it was to try to attract every kind of person if you can't drink, you know, if, if you're out with a group of friends and one of them has celiacs or whatever, you're probably going to pick a place that caters to that. So we wanted to make sure we could do that. Um, and when it's your own wife, like, I mean, you all, you clearly want to build a, <laughs> that a place, your business, your brewery that, uh, yeah. you know, your own wife can go enjoy herself at too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we, we were just thinking, you know, we knew that in craft beer, heavily fruited, mostly sour kettle, sour beer, was just really a thing that was becoming really, really popular. Um, it was a style where we were doing a lot of and really enjoying. Again, it's like, I think it is that that culinary-minded part. It's it's like, how can we use different adjunct outside ingredients to make something really fun and interesting? Um, but, you know, it just wasn't being done in, in seltzer. And you would have thought at the time, like, well, you can't do that because people are drinking seltzer for a specific reason. It's low calorie, which is definitely true. But we took this, like, inside baseball 
you know, nerdy craft beer thing that most people don't really even know about and wanted to put it into a product that is the kind of the opposite of that. It's more large scale, uh, as friendly as possible to as many people, as many people as possible, like combine those two concepts. It was Tommy had been pushing for a while. Like we should try a seltzer. And I think I was one of those brewers that you were talking about pretty early on. I was like, I don't want to do this shit. Like, you know, and I was definitely very resistant to it, but like, sometimes you got to get over yourself to like find a new way of doing things. So I'm, I'm very happy to admit that I was one of those people, but like being closed minded is not going to help. So we, um, you know, we worked with, uh, Jacob Russell Meyer, who's one of our, our brewers at the time. He's very engineer minded. And I think was really good at finding a way to make it work. I, I think I was a little bit more on the recipe development. What ingredients could we use? What, what, uh, like what flavors combinations could we use? And then the original idea was Tommy really being like, we do these heavy fruited beers. I think it would work really well in, in seltzer as well. So it's like a combination of the three of us that kind of came together. And we, I think the first thing we put together may have been like a, just on a trial, like not even making a production batch or L maybe it was like strawberry banana or the pina clot. It was one of those two, I think. And we tried and I was like, Oh shit, this is, <laughs> this yeah. is probably something. Um, and then we, we, we had a small like hop torpedo, basically yeah. it, it holds 90 gallons. We, f- we filled that with base seltzer that we had fermented, you know, in an unjacketed container, just like very loosey goosey, uh, added fruit, put it into a walk-in. It had a, a little like carb carb stone that was tri clamped onto it. We carbonated it in the walk-in, ran it through our, you know, we have a wild goose canning line, you know, had a bunch of waste, got a very small amount of it. <laughs> right. Um, and then, you know, just kind of released it without much fanfare. Didn't tell people we were doing a seltzer, just kind of released it. The first time we released it was under Troubadour. And then within like 30 minutes, we're like, we got to change Troubadour. That's not a name we can use. Yeah, no. So Troubadour, uh, Smooge. I think at first Troubadour might've been a name we were going to use more. And then we're like, just, just make it Smooge. And that's kind of how it progressed. It was just like, people got a handle of it. I was like, this is crazy. So we just kept doing and what it. What year was that? That was the summer. It was June of 2020, I want to say. So you released Smooge then in the midst of a pandemic and it went into cans. Obviously, it was harder to do on premise at that point. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a huge part of why Smooge ever happened. I think if it, if the pandemic didn't happen, it wouldn't Smooge would not have existed. It was like, yeah, we didn't have people. We're not a distributing brewery. We only sell out of our locations. Yeah. So I think it was just like a what's a creative thing we can to get people's attention and interest um, with all the other breweries that are trying to do the same thing we're doing. And yeah, we had just gotten a canning line. We got a canning line in February of 2020. So like right before oh, things man. got crazy. Wow. I was so lucky. Wow. That was incredible luck. Incredibly lucky because we were using mobile canning and they were shut down for a while once it started. So yeah. we would have been in a lot of trouble if that didn't happen. Yikes. Yikes. It's weird to hear like society in, in San Diego, the same thing happened where they had, their their larger scale production canning line already like it was you know weeks away from being commissioned yeah and uh, when that whole thing it's, it's there's just some of those dodging a bullet stories right there yeah so you guys had a little bit of extra time in your hands it's funny because when we look back now two years ago to, to 2020 um number one american brewers got way better brewing lagers through the pandemic because yeah. all of a sudden you had time and some tank space especially yeah. if you're a smaller brewer and some you know could put some some time you know dedicate 
stuff because tanks were just not going to, they didn't need to be constantly filled for that, that, that churn of summer business, unfortunately. Um, you know, but uh, you all had time to then play around with making hard seltzer. Yeah, for sure. And that's when we started working on lagers as well. Um, we kept busy enough to really keep, you know, the entire brewing staff, Mm -hmm. um, on hand and started working through the, you know, it was creating a new category of alcohol. So there was, it's not a lot of information on how right, to make right. heavily fruited salt. I mean, there's no information out there. And obviously there's a lot of crossover with beer and stuff. So we just started working through the process and still are still working on it. Sure. So since that first batch, you've clearly had, you you know, you've put more work into it. Yeah. More iteration. Yeah. You know, take, yeah. Um, talk to me about, let's maybe start with, you know, at the very bottom and uh, building a, a seltzer base for this. You know, clearly you want to use, uh, you know, a neutral fermenting or use a process to strip out uh, a lot of the fermentation flavor for that to get something that's, that's super neutral. Um, you know, what does that fermentation look like for you all on this? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, you know, as silly as some people might think, like this is actually a really hard product to make. It's, hmm. uh, it's super, super seller heavy. It's really all about seller side. Um, we oh, I'd imagine like between yeast nutrition and, you know, trying to get it clean, 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 clean. I mean, yeah, you know, before yeah. you layer fruit in, like that's, that's it. pH, uh, you know, pH acts very differently than beer during fermentation. Yeah. Nutrients. You, I mean, you're starting with water and sugar. There's right. nothing there. So you really have to be super uh, intentional about that. And then we mess around with the water profile a lot like we would with beer. To, what sugar do you use for a base? Uh, that we use dextrose. dextrose yeah. I don't know that that's going to be a forever thing. You know, the prices of dextrose are going up, but probably the price of every sugar is going sure, up at this point. Sure. Um, I think we're open. There's to, other reasons to have dextrose in your brew house. You right. Know, yeah, so. exactly. And, and with sugar, I mean, it seltzer, it's a cleaner fermentation. So there's probably more room to switch up what sugar you want to use at, at any given point. Right. Um, so we're brewing a yeah, we're brewing a base seltzer. Um, uh, to, to a certain ABV, we're blending in fruit to get to our final ABV. And then is there a specific yeast that you use for this? Um, I'm trying to think of the yeast off. It's a dry yeast that okay. we're using. Yeah. It's not something we're, we're reusing just cause that, mm. that fermentation is pretty rough yeah. on the yeast. I don't know off the top of my head what yeast we Fair use. Enough. Um, but that fermentation is pretty, pretty rough on the yeast. It's not something worth reusing or yeah. cropping. And we do, we do a lot of, um, you know, uh, propagation we, with that's the other cool, cool part about smooge. It's allowed us to spend money on products, equipment, and people that we wouldn't have been able to do if it was just home. So we, Jen is our lab manager. We hired her on, she's, you know, growing all of our brewers yeast from a slant to a right, propagation right. pitch every single time. Um, we've got tons of equipment, you know, salometer, PCR machine and all that. Um, so that's, that's another cool part about having that program as well. But yeah, we're, we're, uh, blending in fruit to get to the ABV we need. Um, you got to make sure that it's fully incorporated. You know, the, we sell the cans to be sold up they're upside down when they're in the package so that you're forced to flip it back over. Cause there is settling. It's all, we don't use any extract. There's, n- there's no flavor extract at all. It's mm. all real fruit. Um, when we use vanilla in a product, it's actual Madagascar vanilla beans, um, or if there's spice, it's actual, you get the idea. It's all sure, real sure. ingredients. So um, you got to make sure that the fruit is kept in suspension while packaging it so that, you know, the first cans aren't mud and then the last cans are just regular juice. Um, so, um, 
yeah, and that that's kind of start to finish. And then depending on the fruit, it's it's not a one size so you, fits you, all. You would maybe back up just a, a hair there. You're brewing a, a <clears throat> higher ABV mm-hmm. you know, sugar fermentation that you then you know can dilute down you know equal you know based on the math that you do mm. with the the fruit. Yeah. And then you know fruit comes in. Are using a, a puree now? I imagine there's some proprietary stuff here. If you can't talk about anything, then then I I, I understand. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. You got to keep some secrets to yourself, <laughs> right? Well, it's it's dependent on the ingredient too. Mm-hmm. I mean, if yeah. we, not so much with fruit, but like if we're using whole ingredients, there's right. some steeping that has to happen. Obviously, you don't want that whole ingredient to end up in a can, right? right. Um, yeah, we fruit puree. I don't think that's uh, there's any secret in there. We have to keep you know. Um, uh, it has to be a liquid obviously to be in the can and and stay in solution. Um, as far as like aseptic or non aseptic, I think there's always room to try different things on that. Um, you know, sometimes there's just products that don't do well as aseptic fruit. Hmm. Um, you know, I think peach is a good example. We use peach a lot in aseptic fruit, but like it's, you do cook out flavor no matter what, when you're getting something up to temperature like that. So like there's options to use a non aseptic ingredient that tastes better Then we're definitely going to consider that. Um, but yeah, we're interesting. We're, so you, you'll just basically choose which form aseptic or non-aseptic or, you know, puree just based on, if it makes sense for that, for that specific yeah. flavor that we're doing. Yeah. But you can do that for sure. Yeah. With all this fruit, you know, you have to then with that base, make sure that there's no yeast left in there. Uh, you know, if, or, or are you pasteurizing further down in the process to make sure that, uh, um, yeah, something will come out of it. Yeah, I would say we're there's like multiple steps that we're taking <laughs> okay. because it's such a <laughs> <Okay>. sensitive product. <laughs> right, right. Um, oh, I just skipped back to the end where. Uh, yeah, you know, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I, I, that, I mean, it's a good question, sure. and as like a consumer, you'd probably want to know: is this a shelf stable item? That we're taking a ton of steps, and I would say our lab manager, most of her job is spent making sure before this product goes out, right, is it right. going to be shelf stable? Is it ready? And we've found that it is, it's just so much work and effort and a thought and emotion that goes into like the stress of figuring out how we do this. But it's, it's a ton of different steps to get us to that point where we're feeling good about sending that product out. Sure. Sure. I won't, I won't push too much more on how you're, (laughs) you're stabilizing that. Uh, You know, that's, that's an interesting one. Talk to me about flavor development, you know, from a, from a creative standpoint, you guys have hung your hats really on strawberry, banana and pina colada Mm -hmm. as the two primary flavors from smooge and have managed to, you know, keep those pretty consistent through all of this, but then also throughout additional flavors. Talk to me about that flavor creation process. And then as you are then evaluating sources of, of ingredients, you know, for these things, different kinds of fruit, what that process then looks like for you, what is that creative process for you? Yeah, I think that's, that's something that is a little unique to this brand that I actually really, really like and appreciate that we do as we're growing it. We're in 12 States at this point. So as we're growing it, there's still a ton of, if not most, uh, most of our emphasis on keeping this thing exciting is uh, making sure that we are doing like small scale releases that you can only get at our tap room in Ann Arbor and still be out in distribution, you know, in all these different states. Like we don't plan on getting rid of that. That's kind of like our farm program for what's going to make it to the big leagues is like a either a mainstay, which is right now is pina colada, strawberry banana and tropical trip 
or maybe just a seasonal, which sticks around for a few months, like our we do apple pie smooch, um, or our distro lab drop, which is we do it once. It's maybe 10, 13 pallets get spread out across all of our accounts across the country. Um, so we use that small scales, we call it smooge lab uh, program that we, we do maybe like 40 to 70 cases. We, we, we shoot it out. We do, they're called uh, like drip drop. We do on social media. It's, it's like a time thing. It'll say drip. And then a half hour later, it's drip, drip. And then it, like after the course of two hours, we've warned people this is coming. And then this, this is what it is. It's, it'll usually sell out online and people come and pick it up. So we, we were really, really intentional about making sure that we're experimenting. I meet weekly with a few of my employees. These are the thing, these are the new ideas we have. This is the thing we tried last week. We changed this amount of vanilla in it, this amount of strawberry or whatever. Um, and there's a ton of thought and effort put into constantly having something that we can drop in an ideal world. We're dropping an oh, smooch lab every two weeks. We definitely miss weeks because of in the summer when production is really ramped up, it's hard to get stuff out as often, but super, super intentional about having those small releases so that our local community feels excited and still bought in on like this thing we're doing. But then also like this turned out really good. We can source these ingredients easily every year. Let's move it up to a distro lab that did really well. It feels like it'd be a good release for the winter. Let's do a seasonal release with it this year. And then if it really makes sense, then maybe it's a mainstay that we'll have all the time. So it sounds to me like, you know, ideas come from various members of the team that are all pushing on this or, you know, they bring flavor ideas or ingredient ideas to the table. For sure. We, we do get, uh, the staff involved, you know, I'm the head brewer of homes and the uh, head of operations for smooge, but for smooge besides managing folks, really a big part of my job is supposed to be the flavor development Mm -hmm. side of it. Um, but I, there's no, I'm not taking credit for it. There's just so, so our our staff is awesome, and they're sure, sure. they're really throwing a lot of ideas. Where do your flavor out. ideas come from? I mean, that I think figuring that out and finding you know that that source of inspiration, and then you know what it like. Where do those ideas come from, and what is the process of iterating and dialing those in then look like before they end up in a product or or during that addition? if you are tasting along the way, trying to get it to what you think it can be in a finished product before you release it? Yeah, sometimes it's like um, marketing down, like, hey, you know, in the fall, it'd be cool if we can do something kind of desserty, something that feels warmer, and we'll mess around with, like, uh, just, the, well, the first thing we'll think of, um, you know, pineapple upside down cake. How do we make pineapple upside down cake in a way that's not corny or cheesy that actually tastes like pineapple upside down cake. And we're breaking down that food item to be like, you know, how do we make it taste like cake? How do we get caramelized pineapple flavor? There's a little cherry that sits on it. Like we can add cherry, but not too much. It shouldn't overwhelm it. And that's a lot of times that's how it starts. We'll take an existing thing like a painkiller cocktail. How do we do all those things, but in a smooge way, you know, um, because you've already set the groundwork that you're not going to use uh, artificial flavors or extracts. You're going to try to do this in the most natural and real way that you can. Yeah, and I think that's another selling point of the product. Like if we can stick to that, that's something that I think people really appreciate about it. Um, but a lot of times it's just thinking of a thing that already exists and how can we do it in a cool way. We just released uh, Cherry Cola Smooge a few weeks ago, and it legitimately tastes like cherry cola, like I'm not, I don't think like if you think about it or fish for it, it's not like, it's just, it just tastes like cherry cola. 
and there's no cola. Like we didn't use any weird Coca-Cola powder or whatever. It's mm-hmm. all just fruit. Um, so it's just like super talented, you know, people that are helping us out with this that are figuring out a combination of How these you get ingredients. cola flavor out of just fruit. We looked up like what, you know, what is cola? Obviously it's a secret recipe, mm-hmm. but we know that like lemon and lime and dark fruit or dark flavor. So like molasses, lemon, lime and dark flavor kind of is what Coca-Cola is. So, you know, we list all the ingredients. There's lemon, there's lime. We use a little bit of plum because that's like a dark fruit flavor. We use cherry, obviously. And vanilla is a big part of Coca-Cola. Um, and it's Coke is sweet. I mean, soda is very, very sweet. So right. we, you know, we try to get the sugar level up. Um, and it just worked out really, really well. That brings me to another. I think that's fascinating. And, uh, you know, trying to construct or reverse engineer flavors out of, a palette of ingredients that you're you're into, but you're mentioning sweetness also gets me thinking about acidity. So I want to talk about you know figuring out sweetness, you know both both you know, residual sugar level and acidity in these to help heighten that fruit experience because I think that is another big piece of what makes yours in particular really pop. Before we do that, you love brewing podcasts, right? The Brew Deck podcast from our friends at Country Malt Group is worth adding to your regular podcast lineup. They cover topics from selecting and sourcing raw materials to innovative new products, plus entertaining stories and insights. The Brew Deck podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe today. Also, as craft beer's most trusted point of sale system arrived as the mobile all-in-one solution you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction. With a full suite of craft-specific features, no contracts, and no monthly fees, Arrive provides the necessary tools to help your brewery grow. Go to arrived.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo that's arrived a r r y v e d dot com forward slash cbb remember there is no i in arrived so let's talk about that uh that piece of of say ph or titratable acidity i don't you know however you choose to to measure that kind of thing which certainly is something that you all dialed into with sour beer before that um you know and then sugar and how those things and then also vanilla because i keep hearing you talk about vanilla and i think that's uh you know as we've talked to on the podcast of folks like uh brett coleman baker from urban artifact i mean it, it becomes that even troy casey for that matter vanilla is that kind of secret that little piece that makes fruit taste even more like fruit you know so let's talk about each one of those things do you you know I, i'm you know, are there specific pH areas where you like for this to be to kind of capture that punchiness of fruit? I mean, people expect fruit to have some amount of that acidity. Does it vary based on what that fruit is or uh, do you just have some broader goals around these things? Yeah, it definitely varies based on the fruit. I think we're, we usually stay very low for sub four range. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not necessarily like shooting for a ph it's it's usually always about taste for yeah, us yeah um but uh, you know just it's definitely it's dependent on fruit for sure some stuff is just more acidic but that's just the nature of adding so much fruit to this stuff like the the ph is going to be really low and it doesn't necessarily come off as super acidic like i think so a lot of soda is like crazy acidic it's crazy crazy acidic <laughs> right yeah, yeah but it doesn't read that way because you're counterbalancing it with sugar, sure. right? That's like, that's kind of the big thing. Some of it's the types of acids they're using, but I mean, you can get like Coke. I mean, it's down. I mean, 
like two and a half p- you know, range on the yeah. pH. Like some of these are just absolutely insane, but they've got so much sugar that you just don't perceive them as sour. Right. I mean, that's lemonade basically, right? Like yeah. no one's drinking pitchers of lemon juice, but if you add a bunch of sugar to it, it tastes great. Like that's, it's a similar sure. concept. Right. Yeah. Um, speaking of sugar, so, you know, is, is there a, a typical goal for that? Is that also more fruit driven depending on where, where your ingredient is on that? Definitely. Yeah. More fruit driven. We're, we're never just adding straight sugar to a post fermented thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's really about flavor. I mean, we definitely taste things and be like, eh, the sweetness can come up. Let's add this fruit to comp- compensate for that. Um, but the, you know, I, I, we, we also are like mindful that pina colada if if anybody's had it before is a pretty sweet product so like we're not trying to blow it out every single time like that there we we do try to fit in other items that are like a lower sugar level that still tastes really good um the idea here is not to just make everything super sugary so everybody's gonna love it like it's we're trying we're trying to balance both of those things i I totally agree with you and especially with pina colada i mean there's a little bit of a spicy uh you know character that plays against i mean it all you know i mean it should be Mm -hmm. that that's normal in a a pina colada yeah and some and pineapple itself has some of that like earthy spiciness yeah the count you know that plays against the the fruit character there yeah um is there anything in particular that you do to 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 kind of heighten that balance i thought it was really fascinating there wasn't like as you drink it, yeah, it's, it's it's intentionally more balanced than some people might want to uh, or be able to appreciate if they're not trying to tear apart the flavor. Yeah, I mean that it's like that lemonade uh, idea. Like, pina colada has pineapple and key lime in it, both very very acidic things. Um, so we do we you know we do counterbalance that with the coconut product that we use to kind of mm. find a middle ground. And I think it also like, it almost has like an umami thing to it that is hard to explain. Um, it's not savory, but it's not just straight up sweet. That pina colada was one of the ones we tried really early on. And we're, we were trying to figure out like the fruit dosing rate. And we had like a lower fruit dosing and a higher fruit dosing. And it's like, this shouldn't even, this isn't even a conversation. Like the more fruit tastes <laughs> substantially better because I think it just like the, it, it, it is a bit, sweet it's a sweet product but it it feels right for what that is you know what i mean yeah so how much is too much i mean i you all imagine are trying to find that limit of of just where either you see a declining return and the more you add the you've hit maximum saturation you can't get more in versus uh yeah yeah i mean that's a good question i i think i'm pretty sensitive to really sweet stuff. I I remember like as a kid, we'd go trick or treating for Halloween and I would have that bag of candy like six months. It'd be like summer and I still had candy from (laughs) Halloween. So like it just makes me, I I feel gross immediately after. So I'm pretty sensitive to getting to a point, I think where it's just like, this is too much. Um, and it's just us, you know, checking ourselves and just like, you know, in the early days of homes, when we were getting people to try stuff, when we're blending product and blending fruit before we decide to actually make a production batch of it. A lot of people are, I'm handing glasses to a lot of people and saying like, taste this and tell me what you think on our staff. Um, so we're pretty intentional about making sure like we get some feedback. It's not, it can't just be one person because no matter how great you are at, you know, tasting through stuff, you're going to find something really good and everyone else is gonna be like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is not very good. So like we're, we're trying to get, other um, employees involvement in that way. 
is there a flavor you've done over the last year that, that you may not have expected to like as much as you did that kind of caught you off guard or was unexpected or just, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Exciting. Actually, we've been messing around with a, um, like a banana cream pie type product. And I like banana a lot, but like I, I, I tried that for the first time. I was like, this is actually surprisingly really good. We haven't moved on it yet. I think we're considering maybe doing it as a beer instead of a smooge, which is the other fun part about smooge lab. A like, banana smooge. That sounds like it should be another half collab. <laughs> yeah, actually that's not a bad idea have to hit them up. Um, so that, that one was definitely yeah. surprising. And I think we, we've been messing around with the Mai Tai. Wild Thai banana smooge. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, could be the most expensive smooge ever. Sure. That sure. Wild Thai banana is crazy. Um, yeah, there, there's a few like the cocktail ones that we've tried that I, I've really been surprised at how much yeah. we can make it taste like that cocktail. All right. Well, we've been talking a whole lot about smooge, uh, which I thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, of course. I, I, I love talking about this because um, I'm a big smooge fan. Don't, yeah. don't tell anyone. We just keep a secret between the two of us. I, I will say like when we're at beer festivals, I mean, we just had, you know, Nuclear and our guys were out at Green City. The brewers are always coming up behind the booth and just like, can I get a, can you just give me a can of that? Like it's, it's, I mean, I think a lot of people hated it on at first, but with seltzer, like, you know, there's not a lot of like uh, people out there that are hating on heavily fruited seltzer because there's not a long tradition of, you know, Germans making <laughs> seltzer. Sure, sure. Like you can do whatever you want. It's a wide open category. So right. we, we've gotten a lot of brewers that are pretty hyped about it. It's it's always a favorite in our office, you know, and the, the you know, we end up with a lot of beer and I, most of our staff who gets any beer that is left over from our review process you know, they get a little jaded on on the amount of free beer, but you know, <laughs> as you would expect, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Because because it's an unlimited flow, and uh, you know, and so yeah, I, at times I have to cajole people into taking extra beer home just so that it doesn't, you know, end up burying us. And um, but man, when the smooge arrives in the office, everybody knows <laughs> they recognize the packaging, and then I get the questions: Well, when are we gonna when are we gonna open the smooge? When are we gonna open the smooge? <laughs> like, I mean, it's it's developed a fan base. I love amongst, that. Uh, amongst the team in our office. And so they're very excited that we're doing this podcast, the smooge, awesome. smooge episode today. But let's uh, let's change gears. Let's talk about uh, something non-fruited hard seltzer. Sure. Um, you know, you all brew whole, all sorts of beers. Again, you mentioned hops and sour beers were the, uh, uh, you know, original inspiration or the things you focused on in the earliest days of the brewery. Um, what do you find yourself uh, exploring these days in the world of brewing? And what... Uh, what are what are the the subjects in brewing or styles in brewing that uh, you've been spending more and more of your time focusing on to try to, to figure out unlock or solve? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, like I said, we brought on a lot of talented people, so I think they're they're very open to bring stuff to the table. Um, you know, we've definitely uh, started working on the thialized fermentation. Phantasm, we're, we're working with YCH. I know you guys were just talking about, I was listening to one of the other podcasts with Joe's. Um, we were talking about uh, the 303 trial blend. Right, right. Um, we're just about to put that in a beer. Um, we're, we're, we're really starting to work through that thialized fermentation and starting to get a pretty good feel for it. Um, just like as a fun thing to have in the back of our pocket. We A few weeks ago, we brewed a Midwest IPA with the thialized Chico yeast as like just a fun, you know, such a, and especially in Michigan, it's it's got a lot of like set standards with 
too hearted. People know what to expect from Midwest IPA. But again, we so want what to, is what are the what's the framework of Midwest IPA that everyone understands? I, I think is in, it just a centennial IPA, centennial like, yeah. slightly malty IPA, clean fermentation, huh. uh, ABV probably between like seven and seven and a half percent. Um, like the pininess, kind of bitter, not super bitter. Um, I think that's basically it. Maybe not everybody is on board with that, but <laughs> that's what I think. Okay. Everyone, and it's like, we're in the Midwest. It'd be fun to do a new version of this. So we did a thialized version of it, just like playing around with it. So that's something I'm really excited about. Um, what were, how did it, what, how, what are the results? I mean, it was, it was that expected thialized, like very white wine funk in the aroma with mm-hmm. passion fruit and grapefruit still got that some of that in the fermentation we kind of messed around with the hopping rate so it wasn't quite as bitter because we like the lower you know lower end mm-hmm. of bitterness but we used some michigan uh, we used some centennial and some michigan chinook which michigan chinook is an awesome hop um and we i love it i think it turned out really nice i think People like expect hazy IPA, New England IPA from us, so they're not necessarily sure what it even is. Right, right. But we, I mean, I, I really like it. I think we can return to it and do some new versions of it in the near future here. Super excited about uh, all of this because I, I've always been a big Nelson Sovin fan yeah. and uh, and love the character those bring. And I love that it's now being liberated from, uh, you know, from solely that uh, uh, hop appellation down there. Yeah. Um, you know, talk to me about Michigan Chinook. That sounds interesting to me. I mean, I, and now that you bring it up, having a background, making hoppy beers for so long, being a, you know in a state like Michigan that also has been growing as a hop producer and has uh, some unique flavors and terroir to those hops. Uh, you know, how do you think about those hops and how do you use those hops? Michigan Chinook and Michigan Copper are the first are the two things we really use exclusively. Mm-hmm. From you know, uh, we don't use a lot of Michigan hops outside of that. I think the Michigan copper, that's actually the name. It's Michigan copper. Right. And Sh- Chinook just grows uh, really, it's really pineapple-y here. Like mm. that, that's, there's definitely a big difference between um, what's grown on the West Coast and right. what's grown here. Um, and I've, I've tried to turn on a lot of brewers that we've collabed with from outside of the state to use it. Uh, Michigan copper is is very tropical, like kind of like tropical fruit candy almost like the artificial uh tropical fruit the growing seasons here have been a little unstable unstable you know we're we're not our growers are not super fine fine tuned in yet Uh, we've had better years and worse years but um both of those hops we love um i michigan copper i try to get in the mix at least once a quarter for release beer because it is just like a fun unique hop variety we love both of those yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, on, on that hoppy beer front, uh, you know, are there any other approaches that uh, you're really excited about these days? Yeah. So the, our biggest thing, and the thing I try to push the most, is just being very open minded to changing how we do things. And especially, we've got that luxury because we're a brew pub. You know, we're not making flagships, putting it out to distribution. So, you know, getting away a little bit from the fermentation hop edition, trying to, to get that hop burn. Uh, down, trying to get rid of that hop creep, doing a lot of much uh, later stage dry hop fermentation at fermentation temperatures, cold crashing soon after to, you know, pick up hop flavor, eliminate the hop burn is definitely something uh, we've been paying a lot of attention to. Messing with our water a ton all over the place. Um, Messing in what way? chloride levels for sure we've gone up to the very high end and come down ann arbor water is not like amazing but it's not 
unusable either. So we, we don't have an RO system. Um, and we're, what we're starting to do now is I think the most useful thing we're doing is getting the beer tested instead of just the water tested, like the really the final product tested. And that's been super insightful in learning. Like actually our chloride levels are substantially higher than we thought they were. So we're kind of messing around with that right now. And then we, we mix in West Coast. I, I don't want to ever give up on West Coast IPA. So we're, we're still mixing in those uh, from time to time too. And then with our lagers, we dry hop our lagers quite a bit. And we're trying to really find some fun ways to do that. Lower hopping rates while it's cold. How much time should it spend on the hop? Should we do it in the fooder or in stainless? Um, what varieties work? So a lot of New Zealand stuff in dry hops just because we, we like that combination with like a crisp lager profile and you know it removes that kind of idea that these have to be super traditional approaches to lagers yeah uh, you know you're you're liberating uh, from that tradition and uh you know just taking that approach to it talk to me uh you know about that what when you're using southern hemisphere hops or uh out of the norm hops uh where do they tend to be and how do you tend to use those in, in lagers and making these in fooders also, you know, produces this other way of, again, yeah. calling these different separate current modern things and not a part of one of those traditions. Yeah. We work with Freestyle. Um, we contract uh, Motueka, uh, Nelson Savin, like a lot of folks do, um, and Waimea. Um, I just like, like, the the soft, kind of funky, tropical. I always kind of think of it as, like, papaya. Like, you know, papaya can get real funky. Mm-hmm. The, obviously, with Nelson, the... the, the uh, white wine grape i and i always describe it as funk i don't know if people would it's not funk it's in brett but like just like that white wine kind of stank sure sure <laughs> is, is, is along with like a little like almost a like linen like snap you know yeah. like a little fresh edge to yeah. it as well yeah we're just liking that in lagers rice lagers specifically like i just in in my mind you know that that's kind of how I, I try to like visualize how it would taste and I like I like the idea of like a very crisp, even like rice or Japanese style lager, which we've done, uh, and dry hopping it with some kind of New Zealand hop at the end. I like the the combination of those flavors. That's another fun thing. We're trying to find some interesting grains. So like not just rice, but we found a place that will malt um, Carolina Gold, which is an heirloom variety down in the Carolinas, uh, brought over you know from Africa when slaves were brought to the United States. Um, and it was, it's a rice that has been held on in, in very small farms throughout, you know, decades of farmers kind of picking the, the type of rice that's going to grow best and, and get the biggest yield. And then Carolina Gold started making a comeback with a lot of chefs uh, in the United States. And then I was like just extremely excited to find a place that would malt it. So we started using that in a Japanese rice lager we do in a fooder. It's just that like continued idea that like there's lots of breweries that are doing amazing, amazing beers to style we can try something else though. We can do something different in a a fun, more thoughtful way. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, and as a chef, you're constantly being stimulated or as someone with that chef background, you're constantly being being stimulated by these ingredients. Um, and it sparks new ideas and, uh, you know, new ways you can do things. Speaking of that, are are there any, uh, you know, say out of the box ingredients that you've come across over the last year that, uh, you, that have sparked new ideas for beers, uh, or, you know, across whatever style that might be. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been messing around with, um, cereal a lot. So not like the kid, not kids cereal, not like fruit loops, but right, just straight right. up the most boring cornflake cereal you can get. Uh, we've, we've been using that, um, in some stouts in in some smooch products. 
Um, we like it. It does add to body. Um, and it's cornflakes, just, just cornflakes cereal. Yeah. Or at least perception of vanilla mm. in my mind is kind of like that too. Like vanilla doesn't make a thing thicker, but the association of vanilla, like from everything you've ever, you know, ice cream or whatever right, like that right. is kind of built into people's minds. It feels more full when you're using that ingredient. And then just like a, just a very nice toasty flavor. I'm, I'm a big fan of like just toastiness. Hmm. So we try to toastiness that doesn't get, you know, that, that doesn't border on like a malty beer, like something that's light and fun, but also toasty is, is like my sweet spot. So we started using a uh, cereal a lot for that. Um, and then just like experimenting with every fruit we can possibly get our hands on, you know, <laughs> sure, sure. And some of them are really gross and some of them are really fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, we definitely a lot of fruit, and I think cereal has probably been the thing we've been messing around with the most recently. Huh. How yeah. do you how do you use cereal in that sense? Or, or is this just cold side, uh, you know, kind of thing, or are you, you mostly know? cold side? I okay. think you're going to lose the nuance through fermentation. Right. It just kicks out or brewing. It just kicks a lot of the flavor so out. So post fermentation conditioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and then like to to hit any kind of threshold, like I mean, how much cornflake cereal it's all it's to. dependent on the product you know i'm laughing at myself when i ask that question yeah, yeah. because it's, it's okay. so absurd <laughs> how I much cornflakes do you need to add to reach a sensory threshold yeah when you guys started is this that podcast what beer, is that what beer is today but here we are <laughs> yeah and yeah it's it's that's another culinary thing i think those yeah. are the things i can yeah. the tangible things that i can really latch on to is the you know the 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 more yeast fermentation stuff i can appreciate the flavor and understand it when we try it but i'm trusting are people who understand it better and can conceptualize it better to make, to help make those decisions. I really like the stuff you can see, hold and taste immediately. Um, it's just like the chefy side, I think. Um, so the, the amount of cereal really depends on the product. Mm. Obviously it's a stout. It's substantially more. If it's a, if it's a base seltzer, it's less. If it's a kettle sour, it's less. It's just, you know, it's all dependent yeah. on the products. Yeah. 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 Although that sounds like a great ingredient to use uh, if your goal is to lower your yields. So congratulations on that. <laughs> it definitely does that for sure. We, we, yeah, our track record with uh, absorption rate is not great. We, we definitely lose some stuff, but like we're willing, it's, it's a, at some point it's a marketing cost too. Like, yeah, I can get a bigger yield if I use less of an ingredient, but if I use more of that ingredient, it tastes more intense. It's more interesting. People enjoy it more. They're talking about it more with their friends. They're sharing it with their friends. And right. so there's part of that to consider too. So let's uh, let's pull out and look at the big picture now. What's uh, what's in the future for Homes and Smooge? What's uh, what's the near term of the next year, and what uh, what's uh, Smooge and Homes going to look like five years from now for you all? Yeah. So originally we opened with the brew pub. We 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 bought um, a, a space about a mile and a half away within four months of opening because we're just like we can't keep up in this location. So that second location became homes campus. It's a property with three buildings on it. The biggest building being the production facility. We've got another building with our sister company, Dozer coffee roaster. Um, and then there's a home uh, homes and smooge tasting room in there as well. Event space. So that opened in December, um, both homes and smooge are made out of the same building right now. We're getting closer and closer to opening, uh, the property next door to that facility for just smooge production. Um, so at some point, hopefully fingers crossed in the next two months here, those products are being made in separate buildings. Um, we've, we've had staff that we separate, we, you know, separately hired that have been working together for uh, two years now. They're going to separate and work at each uh, facility. Um, 
and we're going to continue to grow smooch homes. You know, I, I think we're very open to what we can do in the future, whether it be more locations, there's no plans for that quite yet. We're just trying to get settled into our, our normal location, but, um, expand the mixed culture sour program, expand, you know, the stout program. Um, we brought on, um, Paulie, uh, get He was previously at microphone. And then before that at, um, Jay Wakefield, we brought him on to help us with our stout program. Um, so we're looking to expand that. Um, Casey Brockett is one of our employees that we promoted up to uh, own the Mixed Culture Sour program. So she's really hit the ground running working on that. So there's there's little projects with different staff that we want to be able to expand once we separate the two and give. Because right now, as you can imagine, yeah, yeah. making two pretty different products in the exact same building, you know, all the pumps are tied up. All the hoses are being used. You know, they're running the canning line while you're trying to run a CIP. People are tripping over each other like everybody is very ready to have separate spaces at this point, kind of get our bearings. But I think the smooth program will, you know, we'll, we'll probably open a few more States next year uh, and continue to grow that and do really fun and exciting stuff with that. And homes really con- continue to dial in all the different things that we're doing between lager, stout, mixed culture, sour, hoppy, um, and all that stuff. Well, that seems like a fantastic place to bring this to a close. G and D stands above the rest is the only chiller manufacturer that engineers are glycol piping for free. Fill like a pro with Pro Fill can fillers from Pro Brew. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate blends. Looking for a good lager yeast? Try dry lager yeasts from Fermentus. If you're in the market for a new brewing podcast, check out the Brew Deck podcast from Country Malt Group. An arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality. Of course, as always, your magazine subscription directly supports our ability to bring you this podcast each week. Go to beerandbring.com, click on the subscribe button, let us know this content matters, and uh, become a part of our team. And then, of course, you can go back into the archives of everything that we've done and go check all of that back content out as well, all included with your subscription. Nick, if people want to learn more about Smooge, they want to learn more about homes, uh, the beers, and the hard seltzers that you all make, where do they find you all? Uh, on Instagram, we're at Homes Brewery. Is that what we're talking about? Instagram? Or social media wherever you want out there on the interwebs <laughs> in real life you know you call it we'll cover it all so at sure. homes brewery on instagram and uh at drink smooch on instagram for smooch and come check us out in ann arbor ann arbor is a super fun town to come visit really close to detroit as well uh, we've got two locations um, both with food and coffee and smooch and beer and frosty smooge and <laughs> mixed drinks and cocktails and everything you could ever want. So they're, they're a good time to come and visit, especially in the summer. We have a bunch of outdoor seating. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's been fascinating and wonderful to talk about uh, how you all brew or make smooge. It's not really brewed, but it's, it's, you know, yeah. produced <laughs> kind of, yeah. How you all make this fantastic craft smoothie hard seltzer beverage that you have called smooge um thanks for joining me on the podcast cheers thanks man appreciate it cheers this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craft beer brew 